Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Sylvia Vocht, who is the president of the Carnegie Bosch Institute and a Taekwondo master. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am thrilled to have as my guest on this episode, Sylvia Vocht. Sylvia is a longtime client, and I have to say, a true friend. She is one of these people, the more you get to know her, the more you wonder how she could be real. Uh, she and I have a lot in common. Um, like me, uh, Sylvia was trained as a lawyer, although unlike me, uh, she was trained as a lawyer in Germany. Uh, and her German is a lot better than mine. And, um, uh, and she is a Taekwondo master. We have in common that we are both martial artists. Uh, Sylvia Vacht is the president of the Carnegie Bosch Institute and an adjunct professor of management at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, she is a Bosch executive in residence, and she's been leading Carnegie Bosch Institute's education and research activities positioned at the intersection of global industry and a world-leading university. She has 25 years experience in cross-functional leadership roles in global industry. Sylvia was vice president in the chairman's office and vice president of corporate affairs for Bosch North America. Uh, she was a corporate attorney and then chief counsel uh, in, at Bosch North America for the Bosch Group. And, and I'm thrilled to have her here. Uh, you'll see what I mean as you get to know her in this interview. Welcome, Sylvia. Welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce, for having me. I have to say, I'm looking forward to having a real and real good conversation with you today. Well, thank you. And uh, authenticity is, I think, one of your trademarks. And um, I'm glad you started with real because um, I think authenticity is one of your trademarks. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, that's an interesting start. Authenticity is so at the core, I believe, of who I am. It's about being true to your own, true to your values, but also true to other people and true to the business you're running in. I have the experience and I firmly believe that authenticity is one of the core things that you need to embody as a leader. If you want to influence others, if you want to build the relationships you want to have, Authenticity is a starting point. And I know, Bruce, you in your book, which is uh, stellar, by the way, you talk about the long game of uh, real influencing and building those relationships. This is where we start. And you've always, since I've known you, been a person who um, you, you speak about values, but you, you manifest your values. You, the way you show up, the way you treat people the way you show respect for people. Uh, I know that there's more to you than, um, than just martial arts, but I also know that you refer to the tenets of Taekwondo as your true north. And, um, and it's very values-based practice. Am, am I right? That's correct. And it, it, I would say it permeates everything I do. And it might do the same for you, Bruce, since you have been such a lifelong practitioner of the arts yourself. For me, I started this way more than 35 years ago. And we have six tenets. And those tenets um, inform everything I do also in my personal life and also in my business life. And maybe I explain them very briefly. So our first is courtesy, which means respect, respect for others and respect for everyone around you. The second one is integrity, which basically means acting in alignment with your own values. And that leads to authenticity. While we talk to the young kids, when they come to our martial arts, we say, do the right thing, even if no one is watching you. And the third one is perseverance. And that is seeing things through and really seeing them through to the end and overcoming challenges. That all goes back to your inner resolve. 
that's your basics. The next one is self-control, which means your ability to exercise self-constraint, which I strive to do. It means you always want to be in control of your own actions, and it doesn't matter what your emotions are or what your impulse is. Indomitable spirit is an important one because that, I think, right now in the COVID-19 situation, we all can use so much. It means courage in the face of adversity. And, and even when you feel it's overwhelming obstacles, you still have that courage. And the last one is modesty. And modesty means being humble and just seeing this is not about you. This is about the bigger good or the purpose that you're trying to fulfill. And as you said, this is my true north and I use it in everything. I use it in the company. I use it how I serve my company. I use it as a coach. I use it as a trainer. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And um, and I do know what you mean, uh, that when you study a martial art, it permeates everything you do. And um, I have to say that uh, uh, you live up to those values, the way you show up and the way you manifest yourself and, and treat people, um, it's, it's vivid. Those values are vivid in how you conduct yourself. Thank you, Master Bruce. <laughs> Master Sylvia. Uh, we, uh, uh, we, we, uh, we do that when we're, uh, 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 when I've come to deliver programs at Carnegie Bosch Institute, we refer to each other as master and it's, it's fun. Um, so um, let me ask, when you, when you talk about building influence with other people, I've taught, I just had a conversation this morning with an executive at Bosch and I, and I said, oh, do you know Sylvia Vox? Oh, yes, do I know? You know, your name rings out uh, and people know you. And, uh, and I think it's because uh, you approach every relationship in terms of how you can add value and uh, uh, where your skill set and your availability meets up with other people's needs. You know, it's a service mindset and a service approach, but it also is the key to your success, I think, or at least one of the keys to your success. And it starts with one word for me, and that word is listen. And to say more about it, listen in order to understand. You talked about being real at the beginning. For me, this is about listening to understand the real needs of the people and then the real needs of the business. And from that, you can develop your shared purpose. And that you can develop with the service mindset and being useful and being value add to other people. Yeah, I, I sometimes um, people, when they hear about a service mindset and adding value in everything you do, I think they get worried that that means you got to do everything for everyone. And and it doesn't mean that, right? Oh, it doesn't mean that. Um, the, the, it goes back to this, where can you say yes, full heartedly? And where do you have to say no? And where do you have to help people in the middle between those two to find your own path? And for me, this all starts with actually asking a couple of vital questions first. Let me explain that for a moment. I want to give, um, give credit here to, to Ralph Coverdale, uh, long past, from the UK, who has developed in his organization what's called a systematic approach. And there's four questions I've learned from that. And those are the questions I always ask first. The first question is why? And the why is what's our purpose? Why are we doing this? The second question is the who? So who are the stakeholders who's impacted by this? And maybe I'm not the best stakeholder as the one delivering the result to someone. Maybe there's someone else. And the third question is what? So what are our actual deliverables that we're setting out to do? And the last one is the how will we know? So how will we measure success? What are our success criteria? And once you work with people systematically through these vital few questions first, then you come up with, is it now the right moment that you are the one saying yes to something? Or is it a better moment to direct them somewhere else? Or is it a moment to saying no? And ultimately, what I believe is you are serving other people better by asking these right questions and 
ultimately you help them to succeed in what they want to have, even if at times that means you're saying no to them. And sometimes that requires self-control, right? And sometimes it requires modesty. Uh, maybe I'm not the right person here. And some people, they're afraid to say no because, gee, if I say no, maybe someone else will say yes and then I won't be your go-to person. Uh, but sometimes that's a greater service. The self-control is very interesting because what a basic, almost a physical reaction for a lot of us who are in leadership positions in industry is we answer questions. We rarely sit back and listen first and ask questions and help other people along. We are so used to being the energetic problem solvers who have to have a response to everything. And so, yes, self-awareness and self-control and review of that plays a big role. And courtesy, I think, is very much um, about respecting other people. And I think when you ask questions and pay attention uh, to other people's needs. You can't always say yes, but you can um, ask questions and pay attention and show respect to other people's needs. I believe there's a lot of truth in what you say here. Um, Bruce, I find very often, for instance, approaches sometimes people having coaching people is trying to give them solutions and give them direction what to do versus what I find is the respectful approach is helping them flush out what are their own real needs and what is their own real path they want to move forward. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think that's exactly right. How did you discover your own specialties, what, what you're best at, what you, where you have the greatest opportunities to add value? Hmm. That that actually was a journey, and Bruce, I can I can share a personal story about that. And uh, as each good story starts with once upon a time, <laughs> <laughs> this starts in some years ago, the year I turned fifty. So it was a big year for me, and I'd set out for three great things in that year. I wanted to do something for my life bucket list, which was doing the Milford Track, one of the great walks in New Zealand. The second thing was uh, career-wise, uh, we were talking my company about a promotion for me, which would have given me the opportunity to go to a different continent again. And the third thing is I was preparing for my master degree in martial arts, so my fourth dan, my fourth black belt in Taekwondo. So I did the New Zealand trip, was fantastic. Uh, started preparing deeper for my fourth degree. And then one day, had an accident at sport, uh, got kicked into my hand, uh, fractured the hand with a pretty complicated joint fracture and a surgery and 75 rehab sessions later, uh, I still didn't regain full usability of everything I had before. And because of the surgery, I was also not allowed to travel for four months. And this led to that I couldn't take the new job opportunity. But the other thing is I also couldn't make a fist any longer, meaning as a martial artist, I couldn't even punch. And so that led to a lot of deep reflection about um, what even makes a master, right? How can I be a master in martial arts if I can't do the basic things? And how can I be a leader in my organization if I can't assume this higher leadership role that I was offered? And that led to my discovery of what's my core what is my value add? What is my speciality? So what I found out is I can actually teach. In martial artists, as a master, I can be an instructor on master level and I can help other people improve their own art. doesn't matter if I can make a fist or not. And in business, instead of running the business, I can help other global executives enable them to be better leaders through my coaching and through my teaching. And so this has shifted where I want to make my impact. It's now about creating leaders for a complex world. Since then, I've set myself very deeply into developing all the skills further along those lines. I've co co uh, coached and taught more than 2,000 global executives. And that has combined my passion and my purpose and what is my value add to the organization uh, 
through finding this out. What's my speciality? And as a teacher, um, you tune in to other people and you, you, you seem to meet them where they are. And uh, you have a, a great way of uh, figuring out what it is people need to get better at. Uh, how do you do that? I think that goes back, Bruce, to your earlier question. This has a lot to do with the mindset of being respectful. Because if you listen to the people and if you give them space to be who they are, then you can start from there and they can start developing and growing from there. I work a lot with different personality styles, for instance, and you have to be non-judgmental in that. You cannot look at people who are different than you and judge them on, but you're different than me, so I don't like you or it's difficult for me to work with you. The way how you have to look at it is, Yes, it is more difficult for me to work with you, but I'm aware of it and I put myself to making myself better at working with you when you're different than I am. And that ultimately goes down to being respectful to others. And that gives them the trust to be able to look at themselves honestly and work from there. Yeah, you're an expert on Myers-Briggs. You're an expert on emotional intelligence. Um, and uh, how do you use those tools? Uh, you know, one of the things I often wonder is, you know, can you learn to be a person of integrity or is, is that something that comes naturally? Can you learn to treat other people with respect or is that something that comes naturally? And uh, one of the things that gives me confidence that you can learn it is because I see you teach it. I truly believe that if, as long as a person is within a bell curve of um, what we call sanity and sane behavior and regular behavior, people want to learn and people can learn. You can learn about ethics. You can learn about respect. You can build the self-awareness who you are. And from that, in mindfulness, find out why does it rub you when someone else is different than you? And once you have this awareness, you can stop and pause and think and then look at how could I react in a different way. And you practice that and you practice it again. It's the same like everything we do, you have to practice things. It doesn't happen easily the first time, but once you practice it, you can develop your respect for others. Yeah, because a skill is just a technique that you practice over and over again. Um, and I'm, I'm fond of saying that, you know, feelings are on the inside, but attitude and behavior is on the outside. And yet it does help if you feel it. <laughs> it, it provides a sense of urgency at times. And you can actually, um, what we always say is, as soon as you feel something deeper inside, that is actually the perfect moment to pause because something is going on that's important for you. And it tells you, you should listen to it inwardly and then you should reflect on it to the outside. Yeah. And so what do you do when you encounter someone in the real world who is uh, either behaving uh, uh, improperly or unethically or, uh, you know, even worse, of course, I mean, I guess it's an easier decision if somebody is seeking to involve you in something uh, unethical. But there's something about ethics that it's not just refraining from doing the unethical, but also standing up and calling people out when 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 you're witness to uh, improper behavior. What's your point of view about that? It's a difficult situation when you face that. And you have to first find what's your own ethics. Why does it rub you wrong what the other person is? And then you have to look at your true purpose and your own motivations. Do you want to react to that because you're revengeful or you just want to hurt the other person? Do you just want to react to it because you feel hurt by it? Or do you want to react to it because you believe a different behavior, different outcome would be the better thing to do? And if you do it for that reason, if you want to serve the outcome, then you have to very fine-tune your result. You have to find the right moment to either talk with the person directly, to find other measures. Is it something, a group conversation? Is it someone else who needs to get involved? How do you do it? It typically doesn't work very well and effective if you just confront someone on spur of the moment and with hot emotions and say or yell at them, I don't believe this is right. It doesn't move things forward. 
you have to find a path to engage with that person that the person will do a change. Yeah, have, I mean, have you had those experiences? I've had experiences since both you and I have a legal background. Of course, from the legal world, you have a lot of experiences where you find behavior in global industry where things are not working right. I have chosen an organization to work with, which has as one of its highest ethical standards that you always act legally. And no matter what, you always act legally. And that has helped me also tremendously to stand up within the organization in the few cases where there might have been questions by someone put to you. And then you could always help them and say, here's our guiding rod. This is how we work. Stay within those guardrails. And that is really helpful. And I think for my inner values, I would not have been able to have a global career in an organization if the organization didn't have those strong ethical values. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because Bosch is a very unusual organization. And, you know, people may know Bosch because they have a dishwasher or, um, uh, or you know, they, they have uh, automotive parts or something. But, 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 but a lot of people don't know uh, about Bosch and uh, the, the values driven uh, nature of the business and, and the charitable uh, uh, nature of the business. Can you just give a, a quick executive summary of, of some of the things that make Bosch so special? Uh, we'll be happy to do so. The, the, the difference about Bosch is it's a private company, has uh, almost 400,000 people headquartered out of Germany. So it's a sizable company. But being privately held and not on the stock markets, it can look for the values that it wants to have long term in the long game versus short term shareholder benefits. And one of the unique things about Bosch as being privately held is that uh, about 92% of the organization are held by a charitable foundation, the Robert Bosch Stiftung. And there's only very few percentage by the Bosch family and very limited percentage by um, a trust. And it's not the foundation running the company, it's a company, so the trust has the voting rights on that. But it means that everything that Bosch earns, all the money, um, either gets reinvested into the organization and the people, or it gets as a dividend mostly out to the foundation, which can do good things with it. And that's why so many Bosch people you talk with, and I know you have met a lot of Bosch people, they're very proud to be part of this organization, which has long-term goals of um, the tagline is invented for life. So long-term goals of making lives of people better through technological solutions uh, versus just being in it for the short run of, of earning simple money for the sake of earning money. Yeah, it's such a cool uh, culture for that reason. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, that I really love about working with Bosch is uh, it, it definitely affects how people how people behave. Even though, of course, the business has a bottom line, and of course, uh, the business uh, it's a business, uh, but but uh, but it's definitely uh, special. It is. And we, we feel that. It's like globally, we have so much respect for each other. There's so many fascinating, interesting um, people you meet and the passion of the people and the common purpose is just something that is lovely to work with. Yeah. And it's known internally, but speak about modesty. Gosh, uh, you know, I think a lot more people need to know what Bosch is all about uh, and because, um, you know, I th especially in these times, uh, it, it's it's charitable. The charitable nature of the business um, is is so admirable, and it's it's something I really uh, love about it. And I think uh, it deserves uh, its reputation as uh, a leading technology company. But I think it also deserves to have a better known reputation for its good works. Absolutely agreed. <laughs> And, and I want to talk about reputation because you said earlier that you, you say to young martial arts students, um, do the right thing even if nobody's looking 
Um, and that in, in many ways, uh, that's a, a very simple way to and, and a profound way to explain integrity. I always say you should act in every interaction as if your reputation depends on it because it does. Um, and, and reputation is something that's that's a long game thing to do. Somebody asked me uh, recently, and I'm wondering what you, I'm guessing you have a, a, a wiser answer than I had. So I want to ask you, um, somebody asked me a tough question the other day, which is, so if you're always playing the long game and trying to build up your reputation, right, then what happens when you have to start over? when you go to a new organization or a new team or uh, where you're starting fresh and uh, that as if somehow um, because reputation is a long game that you build one moment at a time, um, what do you do when you have to start fresh? You basically use everything you know and you've learned and you start over again and you do the same long game. And now you have fortunately learned what are the things that work well in that? And you apply to that immediately. So when, when we talk about building the relationships and even leadership on a higher level, right? Our definition is leadership is the ability to align people and the resources to achieve a common goal, which means you need to be able to influence people. And in today's world, you need to be able to influence beyond hierarchy. Those times are long gone where it was just uh, either top-down approach or an org chart approach. And in order to align people, you have to build the relationship and you have to ask the questions and listen and you have to understand their needs and you need to have your own skills and expertise and make yourself known for what you reliably contribute. So, so when you interact with people uh, day by day, week by week, month by month, uh, you show up and conduct yourself in a way where you treat people with respect, you tune into their needs, you try to add value. But what happens on day one when you meet a new person, when you meet a new team, when you meet a new organization? Uh, is all of your reputation that you've invested in elsewhere uh, it, 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 let's say it doesn't follow you there. So what do you do on day one? You know, nice to meet you. How do you conduct yourself when you don't have the reputation you're used to having? People don't know you. So how, what, what do you do on day one? That's, that's a good question. And I just wanted to say that there might be difference depending on if you're a little bit more junior person coming into a new role in a complete new organization, if you're a very senior person, because the very senior person typically has some reputation that that goes along with them that others have heard about. But for both, whether you're junior or senior, I believe the core thing is not just asking the question, how are you doing, but to be very similar as you would be in an interview situation. Make yourself knowledgeable about the organization you're going into. Try to learn about the people beforehand and have really well interesting listen to understand questions to the people so that you can find out very early and very quickly what matters to them and how does your new role matter to them? What are they looking to to learn from you? What are they they looking forward to to get from you for this role? And how can you find your place in that organization where you provide the most value? So you have to do your homework in advance. Um, and then you have to interact with people in a way that uh, doesn't just demonstrate curiosity, but really manifests a real curiosity so that you find out what's important to them and so you can tune into where they're coming from. Absolutely. And I love your word curiosity because there's difference between just asking questions, which can become annoying over time. <laughs> Some people are like the seven-year-old who just asks questions but doesn't even wait until the response is given. Or is it the true curiosity? You're asking the questions and then you pause and then you turn on your ears and you actually listen to what's being said and you reflect on that. And that makes a much more impactful start for you and for anyone of your colleagues you encounter. What's your uh, uh, view of how quickly do people form an impression? You know, there's there's this sort of 
the concept of first impressions. And I wonder where that intersects with playing the long game of reputation. And, um, and, and I wonder also, even if you're playing the long game of reputation, you know, how quickly can you show people who you are? Uh, that, that goes deep, what you're asking. I, the f- my first reaction to this is I have experienced myself this first impression, and you probably have, and a lot of the listeners have. So, yes, there is something that even within the first te- 30 seconds we shape as an opinion of a person. It is a little bit more filtered in the current times where it's remote, where you don't see the complete person, you don't hear them, you don't smell them, you don't have all the data coming into you, but you still shape a very quick first impression. So what happens with that, if the first impression is positive, it gives you a great start, a launch pad. If that first impression is negative about you, you just have to work harder to make sure that impression gets corrected in a way where it's more appropriate and reflects you in a better way. So it's not a reason to give up or anything, but it's a great investment to make to always be on and always present when you're with people for the first time and whenever you meet them. So there's one way, for instance, if you think about picking up a phone, or right now if you're on Zoom or Skype call, the moment you dial in, If you have a smile in your face as you do that, you're already providing a different inner attitude to yourself and a different first impression than if people look at someone who's very, I'm not even interested being in this conversation right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's funny, you know, I say to people often, smile, it'll make you happy. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to be really careful about who you say that to, because some people uh, don't want to be told to smile. But but I do think that, you know, and and so sometimes people say, well, that's, I'm trying to be authentic, I got to be me. And well, yeah, okay, I see that. But but I don't think it's inauthentic to make an effort, uh, to make an effort to tune into your gratitude, to tune into your uh, sense of caring about other people. Um, I, I don't think it's inauthentic to be purposeful about tuning into those values. And uh, and so I, I, I love the advice smile because it, it does have a physiological effect and um, and I think it's worth making that effort. I think there is an element of timing to this, Bruce. So the authentic, the being me is, I understand I'm feeling down right now and I don't want to smile. That's the first step, so it's self-awareness. But my interaction with you as another human being, I now need to react on my own attitude, mood, emotion, feeling, and I need to pick myself up and be respectful to the other person and show a better attitude to the other person. So I can acknowledge that I'm feeling down to myself and I'm me, and I tell myself and now put extra effort and energy in that for the next two hours, you're professional and as a professional colleague, are working with a different attitude so that I don't allow to draw myself down. And so you're still very authentic. It's just in timing, you tell your own inner self, please park your being down and sad or nasty or angry. Park it until after this professional situation is out and then deal with that. I think that's that's great advice and um, and a good illustration of what makes you such a great teacher because um, I, I think, you know, some people, they hesitate to keep those feelings parked and and behave in a way that is more professional and appropriate. And it's it's actually it's very important for a healthy human being to look at your feelings and to be in tune with them. But you can work with yourself, your own inner self to say, I will pay the appropriate attention to the negative things going on inside, but at the appropriate time. And the more you do that and practice that yourself, the more you find that you actually come to inner peace and that you find, oh, there is a moment when it's okay to be angry and I will deal with my anger later, but I don't need to go into road rage. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that's, that's another illustration of self-control. I also think, though, that 
when you say I'm going to park these bad feelings that I'm having and I'm going to interact with people in a more positive way for two hours, uh, that you're being responsible to the relationship that you have with other people. You're being responsible to your professional obligations, but you're also probably going to feel a lot better after two hours of positive interaction. It provides you additional resources and energy to deal with the other side of things that are going on. I agree. And it gives you something to feel good about. Like if you came in feeling bad and then you have two hours of positive interaction, now you have something to feel good about. It's, you know, there's something – we work a lot with great colleagues who do improvisational theater when we work with um, with leaders. And there is one, one base rule in improvisational theater, which is fun to play with, be fun to play with which embodies a lot of things. It means you're open, you're receiving offers, you're playing along, you're not countering things. You're a great partner on stage, but also in life by making it easy or fun for other people to be with you. And what typically happens in those moments, the same as the smile you mentioned, there's people, for instance, who say, I have an open door policy. Well, it's different right now in COVID, but while we still had offices and doors, <laughs> And then they say, we have an open door policy, but the moment you stick your head into the door, they look at you and growl. <laughs> you can clearly <laughs> right. see in body language that you're just interrupting them, which is sort of fair enough, but then just close your door and don't say, come in every time. And the being fun to play with would be to be very clear, now is my two hours, I have my door open, and at that time, I will turn to you with my body, fully embrace you with a smile and be open for what you have for me. If you do that, you get out of any of those interactions much more energy for yourself. It makes the other person feel bigger, but it makes you yourself feel bigger. Yeah, and I think that's true in general of service, that when you make yourself valuable to others, you're making yourself more valuable. Uh, that if you're valuable, value, indispensability, being a go-to person, this whole concept is in the eye of the beholder. And so to whom are you making yourself valuable? And, uh, and I like to say, you know, it's not purely selfless act. Uh, what could be more ambitious than making yourself valuable? And if you make yourself valuable, the question is to whom? So I, I think people who don't have experience manifesting a service mindset don't realize uh, how how selfish it can be to be so service-minded. <laughs> I think ultimately, most people over the course of their life and maturing at one point reach a point where they want to make a difference. There's so many people who are desperate wanting to make a difference. And this is what human beings strive for. And this making a difference might start at the beginning, making a difference for yourself, for your own career, advancing yourself. But over time, making yourself valuable, you find out that your own skills, your own value, what you do all comes together. It's almost like a flow moment. And you're making yourself valuable to others. But through that, you make the difference you're so much striving to make. And with that, you make it better for yourself too. Yeah, I think um, the earlier people discover how good it feels to serve others and how much you get out of being valuable to others, um, I, I, I think if I could give myself one piece of advice, you know, when I was younger, that that might be it. And uh, and it's it's the advice I try to give young people. Um, that and the harder you work when you're young, the less you're likely to have to work when you're old. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's almost a small self-reflection that people can do where the English language is so wonderful. It, when someone says uh, thank you for something and you respond to that, you're welcome. Or what very often nowadays gets a no problem. You can go into your own mindset. Did you truly say that right now as in, you are welcome. I wanted to do this for you. You are welcome. Or do you say it more in this mindset, no problem. So it was no problem for me to do this, which is a very different mindset. 
Yeah. So, so how, how, um, how are you dealing with and how are you coaching people on dealing with this lack of, of physical proximity? It's funny because a lot of people say, oh, well, it turns out place doesn't matter. We have the technology now, but human beings are wired to be together. And, um, you know, my running joke has been, um, well, you know, we can still see each other and hear each other. Although of course there's uh, visual and auditory data that we're missing. Um, but we're missing at least three senses, smell, taste, and touch. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, we can't smell each other and my, you know, um, I had a, a client say recently, well, we shouldn't be smelling, touching and tasting each other at work anyway. <laughs> and yet, uh, and yet there is something really missing about uh, not being with each other. This is a gap. This is a big gap. I agree. And it, it's a holistic experience we have with people um, across all our senses, which is really, really important in order to build very deep trust and relationship with people in order to be effective in working together. So the the one thing that I give currently as an advice to people where a team coach um, people is about they have to be intentional about it the first thing that falls down the sidelines right now is to listening and to empathy because you can't always see the body reactions you don't really get the little notes between the lines and the meetings have become so effective i hear from a lot of people we get a lot more done in our skype calls or zoom calls because we follow the agenda there's no chit chat any longer or noise but there's also no intentional checking in with each other and continuing to build these relationships as important as they are. So there's things you can intentionally, for instance, do just a 30-second check-in with everyone, even at the beginning of a telephone or um, of a Skype call, of a video call, and just asking people, for instance, what was your highlight of last week? What was your low light of last week and why? And just be with each other. You can um, build deeper tools by intentionally introducing team review tools where you set time aside and intentionally discuss within the team virtually what are things that are going well and what contributes and what are things that we are missing, that we are lacking, and how can we improve on this. And that are the things, for instance, right now in virtual team coaching and other things, I utilize those tools actually uh, to a bigger extent than before. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you said that about uh, being intentional and being intentional about some of the human aspects of uh, not just the work. I, I'm always saying, you know, you don't need to be best friends with people at work and it shouldn't all be about personal rapport building and you don't want to play politics and form cliques. But all of a sudden, so much of the human element is missing. And that's where then prejudices come in. Because it turns into these, we, we all know this. someone, for instance, comes late to a meeting and the second time around, you start building this about, oh, this person is always late and this person always late means this person doesn't care about the job and now the person is not reliable and is not a contributor. And these things are much easier to fall into this prejudice trap or bias trap if you don't even see the person because you're never asking why is the person late or what was going on and th those are the things that you now need to more intentionally be aware of what's going on and ask the right questions so that you can understand a little bit better just this week i was in conversations with two complete different people from two complete different continents who both have a case of um, illness and one even of death in in close relationships. And those are things to understand that and that that impacts at that moment availability for meeting participation is very helpful. And and you have to be intentional because when you're when you're in physical proximity to people, you do a lot of unintentional noticing, right? And 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 so we're we're missing I think a lot of the ability to do unintentional noticing. And that goes back, Bruce, that the human being is much more complex and holistic than just written emails. Yeah. 
there's so many more layers and dimensions in our interactions. Yeah, and there's there's there is this. Um, what's your view of this sort of intangible effect of people working in proximity, physical proximity to each other? One of the things I've been trying to figure out in this uh, now is we're all, the, when the workplace is no longer a place. Uh, that what's missing and and funny enough um uh, uh we're we're like minds right that that i have i think taste smell and touch well we know those are missing right and a lot of this sort of unintentional noticing that's missing spontaneous interaction that's missing but but i i wonder what it all adds up to there's maybe two comments on that uh, not fully scientific everything uh, the one is on different personality styles because I work with that so much. So for some people, friends, it's a huge energy drain to have to do everything in writing. And they are more at their best and can contribute better if they can be with other people. And for other people, it is easier to do things in writing or in quiet space, in quiet time, and they might thrive right now in these times. So that's one thing that is missing, that we have different personalities and different places where people are at their best, and we are losing some of that. The second thing is there's even um, um, there's even research long time ago already established about the so-called law of propinquity, which uh, even before COVID times is, can establish um, in organizations where people need to work together, where there's collaborative uh, relationships, how often do people truly interact in correlation to their physical distance to each other? And the physical distance is even if you're now 10 feet apart from each other, you're already not interacting as much as if you're in the same room in space with each other. If you're on a different floor, if you're in a different building, like many of our distributed organizations are to begin with, you will find less and less interaction. So it's not just intangibles about, do you happen to meet at the water cooler? It is also the extra energy it takes to think things through and then set up a meeting with someone or plan to visit someone else, all adds to this to make organizations at certain moments less effective by not being closely with each other. The law of propinquity. I love it. Yep. And there is scientific data to, uh, to, to support this. Yep. And I mean, do you think that people are more energized and more that there's a momentum and, uh, you know, I use, I use, I, I'm pretty comfortable using the concept of energy. Um, but it's definitely an intangible, you mean in working together and being in one place? Yeah, I mean, in, in other words, does it does it really drive effort? Does it really drive creativity? Does it really drive um, is is the whole larger than the sum of its parts? I believe so. I give you give you an example, just a s small subsection of it, which has to do again with different personality styles. I worked with a team from Mexico, and. Uh, we worked through some things and then I asked, what are some of the wishes and needs you would like at your workplace? And they had a team conversation about it. And so several people said, I would like if you had more of those sofa spaces, they had some spaces, shared sofas where you could go. And then the other half of the team also said, I would like to have more sofa space. So that sounded great, right? <laughs> like we're on the same track. And then I always asked the critical question, why? help us understand why would you want more sofa space? And half of the team said, I would love that because then I could walk away from my cubicle. I could put my headphone on, relax there and be undisturbed and alone while I'm thinking things through. And the other said, I would love to have more sofa space because we could all be there and chat with each other and have great conversations of how we move things forward. <laughs> so they'll be driving the, the solitary people bananas. Yeah. And so now we come to the thing, what does this have to do with what are we missing in effectiveness? The ways how people collaborate and work with each other have very intricate details. And for which moment do you use what? For instance, for brainstorming, when you want to have creativity, you use different ways of working together, where you want to build on each other's thoughts versus just being on your own. And that is harder to do if you're not in the same room. 
But once you, for instance, have all those ideas and solutions, someone needs to analyze them and look at, hey, what's the opportunity in this? What are the downfalls? What do we need to know? And maybe that analysis needs a little bit more quiet time and different people with different expertise doing their individual parts on it. And these are the things we are missing a little bit on either if we are not working together or if we are all always in the same room with each other. Yeah, I love that. And I I, I love uh, your ability to hold multiple uh, uh, conflicting ideas uh, in your head at the same time and and take them apart and explain them. And uh, I I love that. And uh, another um, great leadership and and uh, another great quality of that makes you such a good teacher. Um, so uh, here's my closing question for you. If, if, if you were talking with somebody who is starting out or in the early stage of their career and they say, how do I get to be someone like you? Uh, what's your, what's your elevator speech? Uh, what's your advice? Hmm. So, okay. Good elevator speech for me would have, I guess, three points. And um, the first one would be live up to your values in everything you do. And that goes back to what makes a master, right? So this would be, so for my case, the courtesy, integrity, perseverance, self-control, indomitable spirit, and modesty. So live up to your values in everything you do. My second piece of advice would be work hard. (laughs) And my third piece would be Move the ball forward, which means for me, keep learning, keep growing, and then practice, practice, practice. So we know from martial arts, but we also know from business and from everything that when you find your speciality and then you drill down, that it's still, in order to be good or become an expert, it takes about 10,000 hours of doing something. And then you put it into muscle memory. And then you have to continue practicing it to even keep up your level of what you know. So that all comes in here. So it's hard work. Move the ball forward. So live up to your values, work hard, and keep learning and growing and practicing. Yeah. Sylvia Vacht, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It was lovely to have a real good conversation with you. Thank you again. Loved it. In our next episode, I'll talk with Sue Unvarsky, who's vice president in charge of U.S. customer service for Prudential Financial. And we talked about playing the long game of reputation. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can learn more about go-to-ism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.